morning, Cross Point. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us in worship. Kids, you can be released. And for everyone else, if you would turn with me to the book of Haggai. Now, Haggai is this small little book. It's only two chapters, 38 verses in length. It's going to be wedged right after Zephaniah and then before Zechariah. So if you see the Z's, Haggai is going to be right there in the middle, or you can just type it into your phone and it'll take you right there for that. But one thing that we've been doing is, is for, we're kind of nearing the end of this series. We've been going through the minor prophets, but we haven't been going through it in the order that they're going to appear in the Bible. We've been going through them in the order that they spoke throughout history. And, and my hope in that is that it began to put it in the context of the historical background of what was happening to help us understand the meaning of what they were saying. And so if you remember back when we first started the series, it began with Amos. Like you had a northern, the nation of Israel, and you'll see this up on the screen. This is in the, the sermon resources that you'll see a QR code to uh, on the Connect Guide. But the nation of Israel was one nation, then it split. You had the north and you had the southern kingdom, but both were walking in rebellion to God. Neither were pursuing him. They had their ups and downs. They were both walking in rebellion. And then you had Amos come up and said, return to the word of the Lord. Like return to God's word, listen to what he says, but they didn't. Even the prophet Jonah didn't listen to God's word. When God said, go to Nineveh and preach, he's like, nope, see you, went the opposite direction until God chased him down, leading him to surrender. Then you had Micah, who described God as a, a shepherd king. Hosea, who described God as a steadfast and faithful husband pursuing his wayward bride. Nahum called to repentance. Zephaniah called to hope. Habakkuk called to a faith and a joy in the midst of suffering. And the suffering was approaching because just three years after him, the northern kingdom was taken off into exile by the Assyrians. 26 years after that, the Babylonians attacked the southern kingdom for the third and final time under Nebuchadnezzar and led the people of Israel off into exile into Babylon. 50 years they spent in captivity until the king of Persia, kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall, Babylon once great would fall to the Persians under Cyrus. And, and Cyrus would make a decree and say all the exiles, all those who have been taken from Babylon can return to their homeland. And so 43,000 Jews returned to Israel to take what had been destroyed. The city of Jerusalem laid to waste, homes reduced to their foundation, walls leveled. The temple of Solomon had been turned to dust, gone. And so they returned returned, as we talked about last week, to put the, the broken pieces of their lives back together, to rebuild a life from the rubble. And yet as they worked, as they strived to, to rebuild this sense of new normal, locusts came. They ate everything, the trees, the fruit, the, the crops, everything was consumed. And they're like, really, God, hand stripped bare again. And Joel tells them, check your heart, return to the Lord. And it was soon after this, just a few years later, that Haggai would speak. Now, here's the thing that's unique. Haggai, unlike the other prophets, see,
See, the other prophets, we try to guess when their exact dates were, when they spoke. We look at, at clues of who was reigning, who was ruling, what year was this that, that the prophets would line up on that timeline. But for Haggai, it not only tells us the exact year, it tells us the exact day. Like, exactly. In verse 1, you'll see it says, in the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, and you're like, okay, we don't tell time like that. In other words, August 29th, 520 B.C., that's the exact day, August 29th, 520 B.C., and all of a sudden, some things start to come into light, like, okay, they came to Israel 18 years prior. Now, if you want to know some of the background to Haggai, you can read Ezra 1 through 6. So they started working on the temple. They came back to the land to say, okay, here we are. We're back in the land. Two years later, they laid the foundation for the temple where God's presence would dwell. But the neighbors started complaining, those Samaritans. And then the funding was hard and the zoning permits and all these things. There was all this resistance that they were experiencing. So they're like, hmm, maybe now isn't the time. And so they stopped. But that temporary quitting led to 16 years of entrenched apathy. This is where we pick up in Haggai. That's the context of these words. 16 years have passed. 18 years since they re-entered the land. 16 years since they've done anything with the temple. And then we see the Lord of armies says this. The Lord, the sovereign king, his power, his authority says this. These people say the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Now's not the time. Maybe another time. It's too hard right now. Maybe we'll do this later. This is where it begins. But look at what it says. The time has not come, but the word of the Lord in verse 3 came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to live in a paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Here's what I want you to see. It's not that Israel, the, the, the Jews had no place to live. It's not like, oh no, what if it rains? They don't have a roof over their head. They're building their house first, God. Give them a little bit of time. No. See, homes were built with stone right? And so on the inside and outside, the walls were rough, but you know, that's not too comfortable. And so let's put up some wood paneling so we can put some paint on the walls and hang some pictures on the walls, right? And so they were paneling their houses, that they were more concerned with their comfort than they were the presence of God. We don't have time, God, right now, because, you know, I, I just took out a loan against the house and there's some renovations I want to do. Let me do that first. Let me paint. Let me put in a, a pool. I, I just, I, I need some comfort here, God. I, I, I want to be at rest. I'll, I'll deal with that later. This is where the nation was. For 16 years, the excuses came. For 16 years, not now, God. I just need a little bit more comfort. And that's what they were pursuing instead of the presence of God. While my house lives in ruins. Let me ask you this. Was God homeless? Like, is God somehow like sleeping out in the rain? Like, oh no, please. Like, why don't you just build me a shelter, people? Like, you have these nice fancy houses and I don't have a house. Is that what he's doing? 
No. What did the temple represent? It represented God's presence with them. Like being in relationship with God. Like, I'm here with you. But they're saying, I don't need you, God. I can find comfort in my house. I can find comfort in this new shade, the color of the year, God. That makes me feel warm and fuzzy. I don't need your presence. Not yet. Maybe later. This is what it represented. And this is what they were saying. I don't need you. I don't need your presence. I don't need your relationship. I'm doing just fine on my own. And then God's going to ask a question. Because see, the people are more concerned with their personal comfort than their relationship with God. August 29th, 520 B.C. But before we move on, let me ask you this. 2,500 years later, November 6, 2022, are we that different? Look around. Is the human heart much different? No. There's this sense of, oh, let me find comfort in, in life. Let me just do what I want, God. I'll, I'll follow you later. Once I'm later on in life, I'll get to that later. But for now, I just want to be young. I just want to have my life. I just want to do what I want. I want to seek comfort how I want to seek comfort. I want to have my life do my thing. I don't need you, God. And it was this entrenched apathy that had taken place. The human heart is no different. The human heart will tempt us to focus our energy on our present and personal comfort at the expense of our present and future relationship with God. It's the nature of the human heart. 25 years has not changed mankind. And look at what God says at the end of verse 5. Think carefully about your ways. Consider your ways. Think about this for a moment. Tell me, how's that working out for you? Like someone said that to me this morning. So after everything I had with my heart, like, have you seen the cardiologist yet? No, I'm kind of living in denial. Thank you very much. And it's like, how's that working out for you? This is what, what God's saying. Consider your ways. Think about it. Think about how that's working out for you. Because you've planted a whole bunch of things, but you've harvested really little. You, you eat at buffets constantly, but you're never satisfied. You drink alcohol like a fish, but you're never happy. You layer on clothes, but you're never warm. You're a workaholic trying to find safety and security and comfort in your bank account, but you never have enough money. It's like there's this hole that just leaks out as you build it up. The Lord of the armies says this again in verse 7. Think carefully about your ways. Tell me, how is that working out for you? Why is this the case? Why is this the case that whichever way you turn, when you're running from God, it feels like it's uphill both ways? You run in this direction, trying to walk in apathy. I don't need you, God. I'm going to do it on my own. And you meet resistance. And then you turn this way, and you're like, I don't need you, God. I got it figured out. Thank you. And then you meet resistance. Why is that? Verse 11 tells us, I have summoned a drought on the fields and the hills and on the green, the new wine and the fresh oil. I did this. I'm responsible. You want to know why it's hard both ways? 
because I'm calling out to you and you're not listening. You're, you're still trying to figure it out on your own. More work, more money, more, more, more. Maybe if I just had a little bit more money, then I'll be comfortable. Maybe if I just work a little bit harder, then I'll have the money and be satisfied. But what if what we're really longing for is not more food, but true satisfaction? What if what we need is, is not more alcohol, but actually a deep joy? What if what we need is not more money, but contentment? But what's the lie? As C.S. Lewis said, it, I, I think it's that our, our longings are not too strong, but far too weak. See, we think, oh, if, if we just won the lottery, our problems would go away. Oh, if I just had this, everything would be great. Oh, if I just had that, wouldn't everything be wonderful? And God's like, no, it wouldn't. Think carefully. Consider your ways. Your desires are misplaced. There is human flourishing in joy in relationship with God. But you're pursuing it in every way but him. And he's like, and I'm making it hard so that you'll turn to me, so that you'll listen to me, but you're not listening. Jesus said something similar in Matthew 6. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Consider your ways. Think carefully is something we hear again and again and again. Think about how you're living. How has apathy taken root? Not now, God. Maybe, maybe later. And we see how the people responded in verse 12. At the end of verse 12, so the people feared the Lord. They listened. God says in verse 13, I am with you. And again, then in verse 14, we see at the end, it was the 24th day of the sixth month, or in other words, September 21st, 520 BC. A few weeks have gone by. And God's saying, look, I'm with you. The people feared God. They were like, okay, we're going to do what you say. But it doesn't end there. Because it really does, right? The people were like, okay, they heard the word of the Lord. 16 years of apathy have gone by. 16 years. Haggai speaks and God stirs their hearts. And they're like, today, today I'm going to do something. I'm going to repent. I'm going to do what God said to do. And they start working on the, the temple. And so they get up in the morning and they start working. And then they get up the next day and they, they start working. And they get up the next day and they keep working. And they keep working. And they keep working. And then people start saying, it's not how it was. Like, do you remember Solomon's temple? Solomon's temple, man, it was beautiful. It was majestic. You're building a shack here. Like, this is terrible. And all of a sudden, comparisons to how things once were led to discouragement. They were trying to do the right thing. Haggai 2, 3. What is left among you who saw? Who is left among you? There were those who saw Solomon's temple. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? 
And what were they doing? They were comparing things. Look at how it was. And so they're trying to do the right thing, but discouragement setting in. It's not how I thought it was going to be. It's not as good as it once was. And we do this personally, don't we? This comparison thing, like, oh, look at what they have. Look at their house. Look at their car. Look at how well they're doing. Or we even compare it to ourselves. Look how young and youthful I used to be, how in shape I once was. Wasn't it better then? And we look back. And the comparison takes our perspective off of God. And the reality is we can do this as a church, can't we? We can say, oh, look, just a few years ago, look at the building we once had. And now we're in a middle school. We used to have like cushioned seats and now we're sitting at middle school lunch tables. (laughs) And we can begin to compare it. And discouragement can begin to set in. It's not how it once was. It's what was happening for them. How will you respond when discouragement sets in? What does God have to say when it feels like everything is a difficult, like I'm trying to do the right thing? And discouragement sets in. Look at what he says in verse 4. When he says, even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. For this is the Lord's declaration. Work, for I am with you. The declaration of the Lord of armies. This is the promise that I made to you when you came out of Egypt. And my presence, my spirit is present among you. Do not be afraid. Do you hear it? Do you hear what he's saying? Like, be strong. Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, people. Be strong, pastor. Be strong, leaders. Be strong, congregation. I'm with you. I'm with you. Work hard. Do what God has called you to do. Don't look back on what things once were. Don't look in discouragement of how you think things should be. Look to God who was at work. Did God need a big house to be present among his people? Was more of God's presence there if it had a bigger foundation? Is God somehow more present depending on the chairs that you're sitting in? No. What matters? It's not the building. It's not what we see. It's not how we compare it to what God may be doing in other places. What matters is that God is with you. He's saying, I'm here. I'm with you. I'm working. Lives are being transformed. My spirit is present. Be strong. Don't be afraid. And he's calling out. He's saying when you feel weak, when you feel discouraged, when things aren't going the way you think they should because you're following God now, be strong. The danger of comparison is losing perspective. When we take our eyes off of God and begin comparing our situation to anything else, another church, another person, another time, when we begin comparing 
what God is doing presently to someone else or another time or another situation. We're taking our eyes off of God and putting them on man, and we completely lose perspective. And he's saying, look to me. What does God want from us? In that moment, like, I don't know if you can feel it from, from their situation. For 16 years, they've walked in, in just apathy to God. I don't even care. We'll get to it later, God. I'm all about my house. And then God convicts. He stirs their spirit. And they're like, okay, I want to do what's right. I want to walk in faithfulness. And they begin walking that path, and then discouragement sets in. And he's like, look, be strong. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. My presence is here with you. So what's our heart? What's our response? What is he requiring of us? And this is what it says in Haggai 2.10. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year, again, not our calendar, or in other words, December 18th, 520. That would be the date. The, the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. And he says, what is it that you're longing for? Well, what is it that you should be focused on? And, and what he says is faithfulness, holiness moving forward. But he begins to say this in, in kind of a, a strange way. He does it almost like a conversation. Like, okay, what does this mean? How do we go about this? What is it that he requires? And, and he asks the questions in, in Haggai 2.12. So if a man's carrying a consecrated piece of meat, so just pause there for a moment. This means meat that was going to be offered to God. It had gone through a, a process, and now it is holy to be presented to God. And so this consecrated meat is there. You're carrying it under your coat. And the question is, so if that meat touches stew, olive oil, bread, something else, does that other thing become clean? And it's like, no. That consecrated meat doesn't make it holy. And then he says, okay. And then he asks in verse 13. So if someone is defiled, so you're not clean, but you're, you're dirty. You've touched a dead body, and now you touch something else. Is that thing made dirty? And it's like, yes, that thing is made dirty. And then the conclusion was in verse 14. Then Haggai replied, so is this people. And so is this nation before me. This is the Lord's declaration. And so is every work of their hands. Even what they have offered, offer there is defiled. I've wrestled all week with how to make this simple. <laughs> like, okay, what does that mean? Let me put it in this terms. Imagine you're the Israelites. You've been walking in apathetic disobedience for 16 years. Now God has told you to do something, and they're like, okay, let me do it. And they think that because they're obeying God and doing what he said and building God this house, they're made holy. Are they made holy by that? What God is getting at here is to show them the depth of their brokenness. In modern terms, the reality is, is if you are a sinner and you've had 
a life of rebellion against God. And now you come to church and you think, oh, I'm a good person now. I've done these good things for God. He's proud of me now. I'm holy now. Does coming in contact and coming to church make you right before God? No more than consecrated meat touching bread. It's a little strange in our minds, but it's showing the depth of our brokenness that something deeper needs healing. And notice what it says again in verse 15. Now from this day on, think carefully. Think carefully. Because even what they offered there, even what they were doing, it wasn't, that didn't make them holy. It was still broken. From this day on, not looking back, not looking back in comparisons. It, it literally means to look upward, not looking back with regret, not looking back in comparisons, and yet not forgetting the past either. Because notice what it says in verse 15. Now from this day on, think carefully. Before one stone was placed on another in the Lord's temple. In verse 16, what state were you in? See, from this day on, serving God isn't going to make you holy. From this state, what state were you in? What state were they in? They had been apathetic to God. They had been disobedient to God. But where are they now? What did God say to them? Was he present with them? Think about this for a moment. This is one of the applications. Think carefully about our life apart from God. Because we can look at things now and we can say, God, I don't understand why you're doing what you're doing. But he's saying, remember who you were. You plant it much, but you harvest it little. You eat at buffets, but you were never satisfied. You drank like a fish, but you were never happy. You layered on clothes, but were never warm. You worked and worked to earn money, but it just felt like it was all slipping through your fingers. This is who you were, but it's not who you are. And, and there's this invitation, this reality in, in verse 17. I struck you. All the work of your hands. I struck it with blight and mildew and hail, but you didn't turn to me. And I just wonder, some of you who, who are trying to run from God, who are trying to say, I, I don't need you right now, God, not yet. And there's just apathy in your heart. It's not resistance, it's just apathy. I don't have time right now here. And he's like, Look, I'm chasing you down. Life seems hard right now, but you're doing everything but looking up. Remember where you were? Remember the promise? To be in relationship with me, that's where you'll experience human flourishing. Not meaning that you're going to have more money, not meaning that you're going to have more food, because that's not what matters. What matters is the satisfaction, the contentment that you think you're going to get from that but that ultimately comes from God. For 16 years, the Israelites ignored God, enduring struggle and difficulties and yet refused to lift their eyes to the one who could ultimately satisfy. 
And then, for just a few weeks, they've been following God. Think about this for a moment. It's only been three months. Like, we know the exact day. It's just shy of three months. They've been walking with God. And look at what he says. From this day on, think carefully. From this day on in 2.18, it's December 18th. 520 BC. It's been since August to December. For three months, they've been following God. After 16 years of apathetic disobedience, three months of following God. And what does he say? I'm with you. I'm present. I'm going to bless you. Think carefully about God's blessing. In verse 19, Look at what it says. Is there still seed left in the granary? The the vine, the fig, the pomegranate, the, the olive tree have not yet produced. But from this day on, I will bless you. I want you to consider two things here. Two things that I think we often have misconceptions about God. That one, you may not see God's blessing and faithfulness, God's blessing today. Sometimes we want this immediate result, right? And it's like, God, we're following you, but but there's no grapes on the vine yet. God, there's no pomegranates on the tree, and God's saying, yet. There's no olives, there's no figs, yet. The harvest is not immediate. But from this day on, three months, from this day on, I will bless you. Just because you do not taste the sweet fruit of your faithfulness today does not mean that God has not blessed you with his presence. Now, today, at the moment of faith and surrender, Because see, here's the thing. Here's the thing that I think so often I've heard people say that I've wondered myself. It's the second aspect to think carefully about God's blessings that arrive today without repaying our debts. See, we have this assumption of God, I think, that says for 16 years I've disobeyed. I was such a bad person. I have to repay God. Let me build him a house. Maybe that'll make me holy. Let me do this for God. Maybe that'll make me holy to repay who I once was. I have to repay God for the 16 years. And we almost think that God is somehow up in heaven saying, look, I'm not going to bless you. You have to walk in faithfulness for 16 years. And then once you prove to me that you're serious, then I'll bless you. Is that what God says? It's been weeks weeks after nearly two decades of disobedience. And God's like, I'm present today. Now my presence is with you. It's unheard of, the generosity of God. But the amazing thing is that this grace, this mercy of God that was for the Jews then is available to us today. God isn't saying, hey, repay me for all those years. He's saying, I paid it. I paid for those years of rebellion in himself. That God is the one who shows mercy. 
to those who have said, I'll follow Jesus later, not today, some other times, to those who have rejected the promptings and presence of Jesus and saying, another time, another place, not today, God. And they've resisted and they've resisted. And those days have turned to weeks, to months, to decades. And you find yourself standing here and you're like, I'm too far gone, God. It's been too many years. Too many things have happened. I can't go back and make all that up. And he's like, I'm not saying you have to today, from this day on. And he even says that, from this day, December 18th, 520, what will you do? It's as if God is saying, from today, November 6th, 2022, what will you do? You cannot change the past, but how will you live from this moment forward? Will you continue in the apathy? Or will you walk in surrender and know that his presence is now today as we surrender? And we see this because how does this happen? Here's the the amazing thing with Haggai. He doesn't yet know how this is going to happen, but it's foreshadowed in a promise. In these closing verses, in the book. Notice what it says. The word of the Lord came to to Haggai a second time in in verse 20. 24th day of the month. Again, this is saying it's the same day. It's December 18th. God spoke twice on this same day. And he says, speak to Zerubbabel, the the governor of Judah. He was in the line of, of David. He was the grandson of King Jehoiakim. And God is going to do something. And he's like, I want Jerubbabel to know what I'm about to do. And he says, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. The nations and kingdoms will be overturned. Armies will fall. The day is coming. God calls Zerubbabel a a servant, selected to accomplish God's appointed task. He said he's going to put his signet ring on Zerubbabel. This evidence, it's what you would use to seal a document to show that it had the king's authority. And he's talking about Zerubbabel, and then it ends. And you're just kind of like, that's weird. Okay. What does that mean? And then you don't hear his name again until 500 years later. We read it again. See, when you open up the gospel of Matthew and you open up the gospel of Luke and and it has those long list of names that we skip because we don't know how to pronounce them, right? And we just get to like where the readable text starts. In the midst of all those unreadable names is Zerubbabel. In the genealogy of the Messiah, this was the promise that there is a true king and Savior. This is how forgiveness happens. This is why we cannot repay for the years of brokenness. This is why good works and and building a temple or going to church or doing all these things does not make us holy. The only thing that can make us holy is God in his perfection. And he provided that through Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who was born in the line of Zerubbabel here in Haggai. And it's here that we see a merciful Savior. We're, We're Jesus ate with sinners where he healed the sick 
It was here that we see a suffering Savior who voluntarily laid down his life, who lived in perfection, voluntarily laying down his life to the point of death, paying for what we could never repay. So that all we had to do was surrender, to realize the depth of our brokenness and surrender and to experience the flourishing of a life that can only be found in God. It was here in Christ that we see a a conquering Savior who could not be held by the clutches of death. But when he was buried in the grave, he defeated and conquered death with life, rising from the dead, not by another's power, but by his own. So that we, who have been apathetic, indifferent, seeking our own comfort in life, could fall on our knees and surrender and be blessed with the presence of God from that moment on. It's only possible in Christ. Let's pray. 